I just think trusting banks right now to fix debt when you can't close for 30 or 45 days is really scary. You know, what is interesting is if you can buy it cash, do the value add, and then in a year or two, when the market stabilizes, then go and refinance, return a bunch of capital. Now you have a de-risk deal on fixed rate debt. You know, I just think we're entering a season with a lot of volatility. So buying into volatility is really, really scary. And it's just something that you have to be really careful. You know, we are buying deals, but it's in those scenarios and we're being very, very careful. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Boat, and today our guest is Terrence Doyle. And today we're digging into keys to value-add multifamily investing. Terrence is a very experienced multifamily investor, and today we're digging into the keys of his business that has led him to success with the value-add multifamily strategy. There are a lot of folks out there today using the value-add multifamily strategy in their investments, myself included. And today we're digging into Terrence's insights around what sets his success apart from those who aren't succeeding with the value-add strategy. What are common pitfalls and how is he dealing with them in his business or how has he set his business up to avoid those pitfalls and potential risks in the value-add multifamily strategy? There are a few major keys that we're digging into today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to meeting with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Terrence Doyle. We're digging into keys to success in value-add multifamily and what has helped him succeed in that space. Without any further ado, here we go. Terrence, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your background and your business, can you tell us about what you do and how you invest in real estate? Yeah. Taylor, thanks for having me. Big fan of what you're doing. Love your background. Love your story. As you said, my name is Terrence Doyle. I manage and founded a company called Bearco, Value Add Real Estate. And essentially, that's what we do. I mean, value add is a term and a you know, jargon that's thrown around a lot very loosely these days. Everything's value add. And, you know, I started buying real estate back in 2008. And essentially, you know, what we do is we specialize in buying outdated, underutilized apartment buildings in Denver and Des Moines, right? And so we only buy buildings that require a lot of work from a construction and property management standpoint. And that's how we view the world in value-add real estate. If you don't have to do swing a bunch of hammers and upgrade a lot of issues in CapEx, then it's not a true value-add deal. And so we currently manage roughly 1,500 units between Denver and Des Moines. You know, we can get into why those two markets later. The total portfolio is maybe between two and 300 million. And you know, I've had, I don't know, 20 to 30 exits, bought and sold thousands of apartment units. I started buying foreclosures in 2008 in you know, five Denver counties. And that's back when you know, there were deals everywhere and money was very hard. And then have bought you know, all the way through when deals were very hard and money has been everywhere, right? So I've seen the full swing since 2008 and, you know, really love the multifamily space. I think, you know, it's very unique where you have, you know, 
a really large affordability issue in our country. And, you know, finding safe, affordable, clean housing is very hard to come by. And, but yet there's apartment buildings everywhere, right? And so we think, you know, there's a ton of opportunity and, and, and it's a great way to deliver and to generate risk adjusted returns. And so it's a space we really feel comfortable in. We're confident and we feel like we have a proven advantage in the two markets. And so, you know, that's a little bit about our company and, and what we do. Awesome. Thanks so much. And so when you talk about value add, you know, can you quantify what that means to you or what a, what a target deal looks like to you, whether it's in terms of dollars per door that you need to add or what the going in occupancy rate is or how do you, you know, drill that down to the numbers when you're considering a deal? Yeah. So typically we're doubling the rent. I mean, you know, we'll, wow. we've gone as low as 30%, you know, in some locations, if it's a larger complex. But typically, like on a deal we're doing right now, the, the average rent is 720 to 740, depending on the floor. And, you know, we own a building down the street where the rents are 14 to 1500, right? And so a value add to me means, you know, legacy owner, they've owned it for 20 plus years haven't touched the interior, haven't added washer and dryers, haven't done flooring, plate flooring, have still have the, you know, 70 or 80 shag carpet. Sometimes it's old roofs, old windows, old doors, you know, mold, you know, uh, roaches, you know, and then we're typically buying it below the market, right? So typically these deals are not marketed. It's just, you know, a one-off thing where a seller knows somebody that knows us, either a broker, a friend or a banker, and they say, hey, look, Terrence and his company can close quickly, and this is what they do. And, you know, so that's that's how we see it is typically we're, you know, either 25 to 50% increase in rents. And so just very underutilized. And most of the time, like the rent rolls on a piece of paper, right? So not professionally managed, you know, managed by mom and pop. You know, what we like to call is we play in the middle market space, which is really five to 50 million in Denver. In Des Moines, maybe it's two and a half million to 25 million, right? But- that space that's too small for institutions, right? Institutions want to write big checks. They want to deploy large amounts of capital, right? They don't want to write a million dollar check. They want to write a 10 or $20 million check. And then it's too big for mom and pops to move at the speed and the level of sophistication that we move at, right? So we just play in that middle market space that we can you know, do more than mom and pop scan and we can do deals that don't fit in an institutional bucket. And, you know, that's where we see a lot of opportunity. And, you know, and so most of the time there's a lot of heavy deferred maintenance, a lot of CapEx, not professionally managed. And the rent roll is significantly below market to the tune of, like I said, 50%. And so those are the things that we use to just quantify a deal right off the bat. And then we'll drill into underwriting and, uh, and see if the, if the deal pencils. Awesome. Okay. So I'd like to head in the direction of learning where you think folks can go wrong in these types of value add deals or stumbling blocks, or speed bumps or pitfalls or however you want to put it, you know, yeah. red flags in these types of deals. And years back when I started investing, which was after, well, after you started investing, but a lot of folks are going after C-class properties, myself included, because the pricing was attractive. There was still room to add value, like you're talking about fixing units up and raise the rents. But now we're at a point where the multiples, they don't really add up and it's pushed people like myself. Now we were investing in B-class assets. Do you think about the class, quote unquote, of the property before you invest or how do you how do you consider that in your mind, if at all? Yeah. So that's a great question. You know, I think going back to what I said at the beginning, like we only invest in two markets, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to school in Denver. I've been here since 2005. I started buying foreclosures 2008. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, right? Des Moines, Iowa is a small town under a million people, right? 
So my family, my brother lives there, my best friends. So you're talking about we're, we're in two markets where we know every single neighborhood. And if we don't know, we know someone that does. So we typically buy in the path of progress. Now, what does that mean? We're buying deals that are across the street or down the street from class A buildings, right? So either hospital, close to hospital, university, mall, shopping center, centers of employment, right? RTD, bus stations, things like that, where people are going, there, there's a lot of money going in and infrastructure going in around these locations. And we, t- and we are buying the most underused building and outdated building in that location, right? And so typically, you know, the value proposition to a, to a resident is I could go live in this class A building, let's say for 2,500 a month, have a brand new gym covered parking, or I could go live in this newly renovated, you know, C class building that doesn't have a gym, doesn't have covered parking, has a brand new kitchen, brand new bathrooms, has great management, great customer service, and it's 1500, right? And so going into a downturn and what we've seen the last 10 years is, you know, we typically get the top tier of that workforce housing market segment, right? Because we're getting people that have strong jobs, you know, strong employment history, but that want something brand new, but are pr- but are price sensitive, right? And But they want something that's clean, safe, and then still affordable. So they're going to get like the interior amenities of a class A building, but not pay for the gym and some of the other things that come along with a class A building. And so, you know, that's that's what we look for, right? Is we're buying in neighborhoods that we know, that we already are familiar with, right? There's certain neighborhoods we won't touch just because I know what goes on there. We understand the crime, we understand the school district, and we understand that that is going to always be a class C area. Mm-hmm. There's other places that Class C is just really the condition of the building, but the location is probably more B or B plus. So it's important to like separate those two, that the condition of the building and the actual location in the neighborhood. And so I think, you know, when you meet someone that really knows their market, they can separate the two. Hey, this building C, but the location is actually B. And when I elevate, you know, the interior and paint the exterior and give it new windows and a facelift, this is going to be a B, B plus building in a B neighborhood. And we bought it at a C price. And that's the business model, right? Very simple. Now, your first question was, what are the pitfalls? Well, there's a thousand pitfalls, right? It's way, <laughs> way harder. I mean, the the downside, because I, mean, I make it sound easy and we've done it and we're very comfortable with construction, right? But it's actually the riskiest investment to make in multifamily yes. if you don't know, if you don't understand construction and you don't understand property management, right? If you're doing third part, third-party property management, you could get crushed because most third part, third-party property management companies don't aren't set up to deal with a full turnover of a building, leasing up a full building, the maintenance that comes along with an outdated class C building, you know, the 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 process to clear these buildings. You know, just most third party companies are not set up to do that. We are set up to do it just because I've been doing it for so long and I'm able to train my people on how to do it my way, right? The way that works, the way that works to make money, right? The way that works to create a great environment and place to live for our residents. But most third parties are not set up to do that, right? They're they're set up to drive their fees and their revenue. They're not set up to like drive the most value to your investors, right? Same thing for construction. If you don't own your own construction company like we do, you shouldn't be touching class C buildings with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of deferred maintenance. You shouldn't be doing it because you're gonna get a GC in there that's just gonna clean your, you know, clean your bank account, right? You're gonna get you're you're gonna get wiped out. If you, if you don't know what you're doing now, the numbers, this is where people get stuck. The numbers were going to look really attractive on the spreadsheet. The broker is going to be super smooth on the phone. He's going to tell you about the five buildings I sold in that neighborhood and all the money I made. What he's not going to tell you is that I have my own construction company. I have my own superintendents. We own our own materials, right? It's like all the advantages that people that do it at scale have. And so I just think you have to be really careful. And 
you know, similar to the conversation you and I have had is you got to play to your strengths, right? Your, 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 your brain works like an engineer. You understand how to take tests. You understand how to raise money and to, you know, check boxes and do certain things and talk a certain level of sophistication to investors that other people aren't, right? I can't do what you do, right? But you, so everyone has to play to their strengths, right? So if you understand numbers, then you should be, you should stay in the numbers and partner with people that are really comfortable with operations. If you're really good at operations, you should partner with other people. And so I think the pitfalls are you have to be very careful if you haven't done it or aren't partnering with someone that has done it. Because while multifamily and buying true value add is very attractive and you can make millions and millions of dollars, it's also super risky and you can get, you know, you can get wiped out very quickly. Yeah, especially these days with all the supply chain problems, everybody knows everything about has been going on for a couple of years and the labor is tough and all that kind of a thing. Now, when you're looking at a deal, you have your own construction team and your own people, superintendents that work for you and everything, but still you're buying an asset. Is there any particular like physical aspect of an asset that has you just throw your hands up and walk away and say, this isn't a deal at any price? Or are you able to like work through it and say, well, if I get the building for free, then I can do X, Y, Z as far as maintenance goes. I mean, at what point is it just not worth the hassle and you just walk away? Yeah. So we've done, that's a great question. I mean, there's a great question because you have to factor in your time, right? And what's the energy? So if the city is involved and you have to pull permits, we're not touching it, right? So I don't like redoing electrical systems, right? Electrical systems are very expensive. You know, electrical wiring has tripled or quadrupled in the last two years. Labor on the electrical side has tripled or quadrupled. I mean, electrical is so expensive. Changing light fixtures, no problem, right? Changing outlets, no problem, right? Switches, no problem. But getting into heavy electrical, I try and stay away from because you, t- you know, you're going to have to get the city involved. And, you know, electrical is one of those things that we do have, you know, vendors that we use, but those vendors are still, while we will get special treatment, special pricing, it's still expensive. And so, you know, you talk about foundation. I won't touch something with a bad foundation. I don't want to get into engineering. I don't want the liability. I'm not going to get into something that is, 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 has, does not have enough power to service the building. Right. So some of the buildings in the fifties and sixties in Denver that don't have 240 amps service, I'm not touching it. You know, the other thing would be, I'd say asbestos. Like we don't really want to get involved with asbestos if it requires to take down walls and things like that. Again, get the city involved, get the state involved. I'm not, you know, those are things that we try and stay away from, but everything cosmetic, right? When you talk about roofs, windows, doors, kitchens, bathrooms, hallways, you know, things like that. Like we go into, you know, buildings all the time where they have like multiple maintenance closets that are run for plumbing and and have electrical, we can turn those into units. If they have multiple leasing offices, you know, we can turn those into additional units. Like we're really good at, you know, taking the existing shell and just updating it in a cost-efficient and timely manner, right? But adding structures, fixing foundations, you know, those are things, anything heavy engineering that's going to require the city's involvement or oversight, I'm trying to stay away from because time is money, right? And so the more, the more obstacles and bureaucracy that you have in a business plan, that those are things that we're trying to eliminate. Okay. Okay. So as I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, throughout the market cycle, and we've been talking about the market cycle here, but throughout this time since 2008, we find ourselves in 2022, we're actually recording this, pricing has changed, cap rates have changed so much, and the, the spread between A-class assets and C-class assets, even in nice areas, that's narrowed a bit, you know, and as the cap rates have gone down, the spread between them has also 
gone down. Mm -hmm. Has that kind of driven you into nicer assets or or affected your decision-making in any way? Or or since you're going at these deals that are off-market, are you just able to just get a better deal than people that are getting, you know, going on market. Yeah. What you're saying is really true. I mean, and most people didn't realize that you know, the last two or three years, people were paying sometimes a more expensive price per pound for a class C building than class A. So a lot of operators and a lot of my friends around the country, especially in Texas and Florida and the Sun Belt, started to switch to class B plus or A just because they thought it was cheaper than buying a class C building. And, you know, we, while we did buy buildings in B plus locations, we always bought the outdated building from the mom and pop. And we were able to buy it at a price. You know, we're solving for year two yield. So we're solving for a yield on total cost, right? So we fix the debt, right? If you fix the debt and you buy in an area where you know with, you know, with a good amount of certainty what the rents are going to be and you know how to, you know, put your cost and construction into a box where you're like, we're not going to exceed this number, then you can get to a yield on cost. And that's what we're solving for, right? And so in Denver, we're solving for a six to a seven. And in Des Moines, we're solving for an eight to a nine yield on cost, right? And so for me, that's what I'm solving for, right? And so typically when you're solving for that, your basis has to be at a certain level because construction is just construction, right? And so, you know, we got to where then we are at the point where brokers just know what we're going to buy. And we have, because we're only in two markets, we've built strong relationships with a small number of brokers that know our business and know our buy box. And we're really clear about it, right? We just know how to run one play, value add, right? And so we're not, you know, so the deals we look at are all kind of the same. And and so we've been able to consistently buy that same deal in neighborhoods and at prices that made sense for us. And and that's really it, you know? And so we haven't pivoted yet, although I do think there will come a time and I think we're entering a season where, you know, land is about to be on sale, right? Land doesn't produce income. People are really afraid. And, you know, there's going to be fear. And I think there's going to be some opportunities to buy some, some, some land or some dirt in locations that make a lot of sense to build, right? We haven't done a class A um, building yet, built different things in the past. But I think we're entering a season where, you know, labor, lumber are coming back down to pre pandemic levels. And I think land is going to be the first asset class to really get hit hard. So, you know, we're going to continue to run our play. I do think there could be some opportunistic opportunities in, you know, in other ways to reverse engineer getting to a value add deal, right? The value add may look like buying the dirt and titling it and building, but we're able to build it cheaper, buy the dirt cheaper. And then we know the location and we know that we can manage it. But no, we've been pretty disciplined. And, you know, how did we get disciplined? It's, you know, we we lost, right? I've had incredible, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've bought and sold, you know, over 700 single family homes and over a thousand apartment units in the last 10 years, right? So I've learned the hard way with my own money. Of like, I'm only doing this kind of deal in these locations because of past experience where I lost. And maybe I didn't lose money, but I lost time and energy, right? And I had to spin my wheel so much just to get out of a bad deal because I didn't follow discipline, you know, method for for underwriting and buying. Excuse me. Yeah, that, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think another thing that I, I appreciate about your strategy and I like about your strategy is how you're focused on two particular markets and more kind of some pitfalls in value add multifamily here. I think another thing that we've seen are operators kind of quote unquote focusing on five or six markets, especially when they're trying to get started, trying to find that first deal. They really want to spread out and not specialize in one area. Did you do that on purpose or in those excursions to the 700 single families and the thousand units? 
kind of look at other markets and kind of, you know, burn hand teaches best. And eh, maybe we focus on just Denver and Des Moines. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 2008, 2009, we we're only doing Colorado. And then we saw more foreclosures happening. We saw how much money we we're making. And we were like, why don't we expand in some other states? You know, we had a we had a line of capital that was pretty strong. And this was before like all the big institutions got into single family. And so we started doing stuff in LA. We started doing stuff in Indiana. We started wow. doing stuff in Texas, in Las Vegas, in Florida. And you know that continued on for three or four years. And at the end of 2013, we basically looked at our returns and we were like, why are we doing all these things in these other <laughs> markets? The best returns are in the markets that we control everything, right? And I think, you know, that's really the story is that no one's going to no one's going to do as good of a job managing your capital as you, right? Unless it's someone really proven, okay? That has a lot of skin in the game and they're, you know, and they're signing their name, right? And so, you know, that's one of the things that separated us, right? Is I'm I'm on every loan, no one's on the loan with me, right? I'm personally guaranteeing it and I'm putting in a big chunk of capital in every deal, right? So people know if they invest alongside me, they're going to be pretty protected because I'm pot committed and I'm not going to let you know, I'm going to watch this thing like it's, you know, my only asset. And so what, what, that's what we learned. Right. And so, you know, we've invested in 10 to 12 states and, and we always get back to the best deals and the best return for our own capital is always when we're managing it, when we're managing construction or managing the property, right. We're collecting the rents physically. We're watching the subs personally, we're writing the checks and we're not trusting someone else with our own capital. And so that's really what happened. I mean, there are some other markets I really like, that I think are attractive. I just haven't been willing to, you know, step outside of, you know, our platform that we've created. You know, if you think about Elon Musk, you know, this is one of my, you know, favorite metaphors, right? Elon Musk, when he's talking about Tesla, he doesn't say it's an electric car company or anything like that. He says, Tesla is a machine that builds machines at scale. And they win because of the infrastructure and the machine that he built, right? And so Verco, our platform really is a machine, a machine that eats apartment building and spits out cash flow, right? <laughs> and so that's really it. That's what we built is a machine that knows how to do that at scale. And so until I can build another machine in another market, it doesn't really make sense for me because we have de-risked the process so much, you know, in these two markets. We know the neighborhoods, we know the brokers, we know the banks, we get preferred terms on everything, right? And we're able to see deals that most of the people don't get to see. And so when you have that big of an advantage on the market, it's foolish you know, it's literally foolish to be looking in other markets. It's better just to be patient and wait for deals to come to you and be able to, you know, play off of that advantage. Awesome. So you touched on coming changes in the market that you're expecting. You mentioned land might be the first thing to go on sale. Now, it's hard to have this conversation and not talk about you know, rising interest rates and the impact that that might have on multifamily, especially when you're talking in the space, a lot of people are like, oh, the tide's going out. You know, we're going to find out who's swimming naked. What are your thoughts on the rising interest rate market and also like protecting ourselves in this, you know, down market? We've had 10, 12, shoot, 14 years of falling cap rates. Well, kind of going the other direction right now. So we think about protecting ourselves and preparing for the future, especially, you know, today. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be either, if you're going to buy deals right now, you have to be buying with either there's, there's there's probably three things. One would be seller financing, right? If the seller's willing to do a seller carry at three or four or four and a half percent interest only for two or three years, I love the deal, right? Seller carry, a loan assumption. If you can get a loan assumption right now and it's you know sub four and in a market and everything else checks out, I think that's 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 great. Or if you can buy it cash, right? That's it. You got to be doing those three things. Otherwise, you got to be really careful 
if you can if you can lock in the debt early, right? The problem is every single month, let's say, a, and this has happened to me three times in the last six months, <laughs> you lock in bank terms and then you go to close the loan that week and the terms have changed, right? Even if it's a fixed rate debt, they've had to adjust their term sheet because of what's happened with the treasury. And so I just think that's a really tough, I mean, you're talking about a falling knife. Every single month, properties are worth less. While rent, the one saving grace is that rents are going up. And now that maybe they've plateaued, but rents have been going up the last six months. But debt is, you know, you know, the Fed, it's, you know, there's a saying from Wall Street, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed is hell bent on killing inflation through raising rates aggressively every quarter. And they're going to do it, right? Powell has said, I'm going to do it even if it ruins the economy. I'm going to do it because he's just, he's so set on that, that agenda. And so who are we to think that we're going to outsmart the Fed and they hold all the cards? And so I just think you got to be really disciplined right now, regardless of how good the deal looks. You got to be really careful. It's got to be seller finance. You got to have a loan assumption. You got to be able to buy it cash or you, or you have to, you know, you know, I just think trusting banks right now to fix debt when you can't close for 30 or 45 days is really scary. You know, what is interesting is if you can buy it cash, do the value add, and then in a year or two, when the market stabilizes, then go and refinance, return a bunch of capital. Now you have a de-risk deal on fixed rate debt. You know, I just think we're entering a season with a lot of volatility. So buying into volatility is really, really scary. And it's just something that you have to be really careful. You know, we are buying deals, but it's in those scenarios and we're being very, very careful. So how do you, that's an interesting, interesting way that you put it. I mean, how does somebody, how does one make money in this market if you don't have all the cash, you know, sitting there ready to go? Maybe you can't find a seller finance deal. Are you, you know, sitting on the sidelines? I hate, as much as I hate that saying, sit on yeah. the sidelines, you know, where do you think the opportunity is if there's any in, in multifamily, yeah. really? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm heavy multifamily. I have been buying single family the last couple of weeks just because it's so soft, right? And, and I'm buying it in, you know, areas where I own apartment buildings. I just think on a risk adjusted basis, if I can buy them at a 30 or 40% discount, I have, you know, as an investor, just a smart play. But, you know, I do think on multifamily, it's just smart to be patient. You know, I think it's like you should be, we should be, as an investor, we should be looking at everything, but being very slow to take action, very slow to take action, but looking at everything, right? I want to look, I want to understand it. I want to see what's going on. I want to observe. I want to analyze. I want to see the data and be very slow to move. You know, we're doing a deal right now that we waited, you know, four months to negotiate, right? And we got big price reductions and, and we're just like, look, here's our number. This is the only number we're willing to do it at. Here's where bank debt's at. Here's where this is at. This is the only number that makes sense. And it's a neighborhood we really believe in. And so I just think, you know, I think patience is going to win because ultimately like the market's not going to improve anytime soon, right? And so if you wait, the deal's probably going to get better. Interesting. I'm curious about also how your debt terms change when you were fixed. That hasn't hasn't happened to me, but you're supposedly fixed. How did your term sheet shift? Yeah, I mean, you get a term sheet in June. And you're not closing until the end of July, mid-July, they call you and say, hey, look, you know, 4% we can't offer. We'll go off you five and a quarter, right? Five and a quarter and we and lower leverage, right? Because the DSCR now has changed. You know, the debt service and what it can cover the property is less. And so and that's how it changed, right? Is their, their proceeds went down, you know, or the amount of leverage they would give me went down mm-hmm. and the rate went up, right? So it made the deal not work. And, you know, so that happened, that's happened to me twice, you know, in the last six months. Just because, you know, on some, you know, some, some larger deals or hairier deals, getting the appraisal or getting the survey or getting the rent roll or getting anything fixed takes time. And so by the time you're going to close, you know, the bank cannot get money at that same rate, right? Because every single month the Fed was raising rates at an unprecedented clip. And so it moved so quickly that the bank was like, look, we can't honor this. 
Wow. So you were locked, quote unquote, with those terms with the bank and they reneged on you, basically. Oh, yeah. And that's going to happen. I mean, if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen. I mean, that's going to happen to people for sure. You know, I've talked to a lot of people around the country and it's it's happening, I think, at scale. And if it hasn't happened to you, man, that's amazing. And I would just be very aware of that, right? So I think it should change the way people are underwriting, change the way people are negotiating and writing their contracts. You have to have a financing contingency in there. I just think every anything that you think is impossible is on the table right now, right? I mean, banks are very skittish, very dovish, and you know they're all the entire the entire supply of capital is shrinking every single day, right? And so everything's getting tighter, and it's only a matter of time that it's going to you know it'll it'll continue to trickle and it's going to affect everybody sooner or later. Interesting. Wow. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Terrence, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah. I mean, education's a great one. I think you nailed that. I mean, you know, that's the best investment anyone can make is in yourself and investing in yourself and in your experiences and your knowledge and those kind of things. You know, from a real estate standpoint, the best investment was, you know, my first hundred unit property in Des Moines. We bought it for $4 million and we refinanced it a year and a half later and it appraised for seven and a half million. Nice. And we pulled out 2.4 million on our million dollar investment. And we still own that property. It's now worth 12, 12 and a half. I don't know in today's you know dollars, but yeah. So that was probably the best multifamily deal I've ever done. Another good investment was I invested in Apple, you know, during COVID. I think it was down significantly and I bought a fair amount of stock in Apple. That's obviously turned out to be pretty good. Uh, you know, I also invested in Apple maybe in like 2009 or 10, much smaller amount. I wish I would have added a zero. That's turned out to be a pretty good investment. Um, but those would probably be two of the best investments I've made outside of you know my education. Oh, so we have the best investment or best investments. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, back in the day, you know, I was in college. I, I started a company and we made a couple bucks and I started to invest in tech. So I invested in two tech startup companies. Neither one of them panned out. I lost several hundred thousand dollars. Whoa. I also invested in an oil company, a, a, a natural gas company. Back when oil was getting crushed, call it like 13, 14, 15, oil was really down. At one point, oil was down to like $20, $30 a barrel, right? And I was buying natural gas and oil. I think $150,000 went down to like 10 Oof. in a matter of like a month. So that was pretty painful. But no, I've had major, major losses in investing in, you know, kind of, I would call it venture type opportunities or public markets. Interesting. Well, you know, I've spoken with a lot of folks about those oil and gas deals in particular, and nobody seems to have a good story about it. I don't, I don't know what it is. A lot There's of a lot of people ones. making money from oil, but I don't know any of them. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, I think there's two, you know, one of them is empathy, right? I think to be good at anything in business, you have to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? 
So if I own apartment buildings, I have to put myself in the resident shoes. What's it going to be like to be them? I want to build an apartment that they would want to live in, right? I would want to live in if I was them. If I, you know, so I think empathy. And if you're raising capital, you have to put yourself in the investor shoes. So empathy is number one. And number two is I would just double down on investing in yourself. You know, I think anytime I've invested in myself, something that I control, I manage, it's worked out well. Anytime I've trusted other people with things and 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 invested in other people's businesses or ideas, it hasn't worked out so well. So I just think empathy and then number two is invest in yourself. You're always going to you're always going to get the best return investing in yourself. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. On social media, so Instagram at Terrence Doyle, LinkedIn at Terrence Doyle. And, you know, they can follow the show. You know, we've we have season three of multifamily mentors launching in the next couple of months. It's on Bigger Pockets YouTube channel. You can definitely check that out. If you go to YouTube and type in multifamily mentors, uh, we have 20 plus episodes on there and we go really deep into all things multifamily. And, you know, I, you know, our team has put our heart and soul into that show and we're really trying to add a ton of value to the audience there. So those are some ways that the audience can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Outcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Also, check us out on YouTube. We're also on YouTube just like Terrence. Right now, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.